think, if I remember when they, um, well, it was Kirsten's idea, I remember saying at the beginning, the whole retreat was Kirsten's idea. And uh, when the opportunity, opportunity came up because of the building works, I, I th I'm pretty sure I asked, can we have a month? Um, and for whatever reasons, they said, uh, well, this is what we got just, just over three weeks. Um, so I feel a little bit like, I don't know how you feel, <laughs> desperate to go home, but uh, get out of here. But in, in a way, I feel like I'm sort of rushing at the end and running out of time and not quite having the time to say certain things. I certainly wish very much that uh, I had I had had more opportunity to meet with you individually, uh, interviews and things and Q&As and things, but like I said at the beginning, there's a lot of, um, it, it, in, in many ways, that just the fact of this retreat has been a miracle. Uh, the fact that the conditions came together to allow that, this. Um, so we're doing the best we can. And, um <coughs> and uh, that's, that's good. So a little bit rushed, and I'm partly wondering how how you're doing with especially these these later talks when I'm not really talking at at the level I'm not really talking about your playgrounds um, anymore your learning edge playgrounds how are you doing how do they land um, it's as I said in our modern or postmodern society whatever you want to want to see that it's um, completely okay if this kind of stuff like these uh, deep deep mystical states and uh, all uh, and these kind of openings it's really okay and i i really feel this way as well genuinely feels it's really okay if you're not interested and um that w that's a perfectly valid sort of uh relationship to have with it um of course some people will be absolutely uh very interested and fascinated and drawn and, and allured etc but it's really okay if one isn't um someone might be or some people might be thinking um i don't feel interested now but it's probably because of my psychological dukkha or whatever it is um once i've got over that then i'll then i'll be interested i imagine um it may be the case i i would kind of tend to, to more guess that uh, if if you're not interested anyway you're not just not you're not going to be interested so in, or one if one isn't interested in this kind of thing one one will never probably be interested it's not like a certain amount of healing has to happen or psychological clearing of the path and uh, and then, then one will get interested. So these things are interesting to some people and really uh, passionately, you know, uh, almost um, uh, interesting to some people and, and, and not so much to others. <coughs> the technical information I've been putting, or the information about technique I've been putting out in these last talks, you know, because we're not really talking about your... Um, keep remembering that, forgetting that phrase, learning edge playground, because I'm not, for most of you, almost all of you at this point, not really talking about your learning edge pr playground. The, the technical information is really for later. And you can come, you know, as far as I can tell, it's being recorded by like three or four different um, <laughs> recorders. So it, it should be some, <laughs> <laughs> unless there's like a worldwide internet crash, which um, it should be accessible to you 
if and when the time comes that, that these territories do become your learning edge playgrounds. Um, but the big picture stuff and the conceptual framework stuff will also be very relevant then when you come to this stuff. And it's absolutely relevant now. So the big picture stuff and the conceptual framework stuff is not stuff that you have to write down. In a way, it m makes more sense for you to write as you're taking notes, to take notes on the bigger picture conceptual framework stuff than on the little tricks of getting into from the seventh to the eighth jhana. I mean, you're obviously welcome to write whatever you want. But again, I just so much emphasis on the big understanding the big picture and and the conceptual framework that's relevant now what's also relevant is when we've dipped into talking several times or drawn in to the conversation and the teachings the the um, reflections on desire and the inquiry into desire and the inquiry into intention and the relationship with what is it to keep my intention on something that I desire? And how am I with desire? And what happens with me with desire? Those things will be relevant then when you're working on the eighth jhana or whatever it is, but they're relevant now. And as I said, these things, big picture, conceptual framework, desire and intention, these things are, if you like, more fundamental than can I move from this jhana to that jhana? Um, but sometimes we kind of, human beings have a habit of listening listening with the wrong set of priorities or the l wrong not quite a, a developed sense of actually what's most important i've said all this before understanding the big picture understanding the conceptual framework is actually rare it's very rare and i've said that before so yesterday um yesterday we talked about the realm of neither perception or non-perception and today, I would like to talk about what's beyond that, um, the unfabricated, the deathless, uh, the asankata, or what is asankata dhamma, the, um, the uh, san sankata is related to the sankara, it usually gets translated as condition, conditions or con conditioned, sankata is to be conditioned or fabricated. So the unfabricated, the unconditioned. Now, all this business about we're being quite rushed is that's not the end of the story to me. Opening to realizing um, the unconditioned, the unfabricated, um, absolutely wonderful and important as that is, is not the end of the story. Um, for some people it is, or for some, te for some m maps of the Dharma it is, but even that is becoming actually quite rare in the Dharma world. Um, even any kind of importance given to this, um, I don't even know the word for it, the realm of the unfabricated or the unfabricated, this complete fading. That's actually getting rarer and rarer in in a lot of Dharma worlds, I think in the insight meditation world, certainly. Um, but in my, in my book, it's extremely important, extremely um, touching, beautiful, liberating, but it's, it's kind of like um, half, half, half the story, if you like. And the other half has to do with emptiness, which goes even deeper than the unfabricated. Now, unfabricated is important for emptiness, but emptiness in its full understanding goes even deeper. Um, I have written about and explained all this elsewhere a lot, and I'm not going <laughs> to do it again today. Um, uh, it's in this business about going beyond the unfabricated is in seeing that freeze in the chapters 
kind of leading up to and then and then after the bits about the unfabricated in a lot of detail in a lot of practical detail and also conceptual uh, detail i've written and spoken about it as i said in a lot of detail um about the unfabricated about how to how that opens up in practice about what it means to go beyond it and how that opens up in practice about the relationship of both of those stages to emptiness and liberation and about the whole philosophy that's or, or the whole philosophical uh, uh, the kinds of philosophical questions that are implicit in all that about reality and how we uh, know what's real how we can trust what's real so ontology and epistemology um i've as i've written and talked about it a lot in uh, where you'd expect to find it in the, m- the seeing that free is a book about emptiness and talks about emptiness etc but there's also a lot of that material and a lot of different approaches and even further kind of elaborations of that material in talks about soul making in soul making dharma talks because it's it's actually woven into all that and has a lot of implications philosophically for all that territory so i got a note saying um would it fit is there any space in tonight's talk to be able to distinguish the terms dependent origination and emptiness maybe also codependent arising lack of inherent existence i anyway thought of them as synonymous um so the the short answer is no um unfortunately there isn't quite enough time i can say something very brief now but it is all in that material it's all there I think it's really really clear. I really took a lot of trouble being really really clear. Every word means something, implies something. Um certainly in the writing and in, in the in the obviously the the verbal uh, teaching is is a, a bit more loose. Um but it's there to briefly for this. So uh, this isn't a talk about emptiness primarily. It's a talk primarily about the unfabricated, but briefly in terms of this question. So part of the problem is terms like dependent origination and emptiness get used in a lot of different ways in the dharma even in the insight meditation world you'll find that we could list i don't know how many different ways they are used and i would say the same term understood at very different levels which a person might using it in a s- at a certain level might think well that's the total thing that's the final level of understanding but someone else might or as i would put rank those kind of as provisional levels of understanding you understand um so it gets quite tricky trying to untangle all that but briefly dependent origination we could say okay this book is a dependent arising which means what well someone sat down and spent a lot of time writing it um the paper had to come from trees um someone had to cut down the trees and take it to a paper mill and make paper out of it and then there was the ink and whoever however the person the author had to um practice and study a lot all these are the book arose dependently on all those conditions yeah do you un- understand that yeah okay that's all really really important and lovely and can give a nice sense of interconnectedness with everything but it won't do that much for liberation okay um so the primary emphasis i put on understanding dependent origination is dependent on the mind dependent on the way of looking so we've seen this when we talked about working with pain on this retreat i 
Here's the pain. It is a pain. It seems to, I'll weave in the other word, it seems to inherently exist. It just exists. It is what it is. It's a pain and it hurts. When I find I play with perception, I look at it in a different way, I find that, oh, it's become a pleasure. It's become pity. It does not exist inherently as pain. Okay? It doesn't exist uh, from its own side, the Tibetans say. It's dependent, it dependently arises, it dependently originates. Primarily, the most important thing for liberation, I would emphasize, it dependently originates on the way of looking in the moment. Do you understand? Yes? Okay, so that, that's, we could say much, much more about these terms. Dep- codependent arising is, um, uh, is uh, just, let's say for now, just the same thing, and I'll, I'll weave it into la- later in the talk. Um, Lack of inherent existence is is um, at one level at one level synonymous with emptiness or dependent arising. In other words, um, to say that this pain lacks inherent existence is, as many of you have have seen for yourselves and felt for yourselves in meditation already, to say that this pain lacks inherent existence is just the same thing as saying without my looking at it in my normal habitual reactive ways it does not arise and exist for me as pain yes it lacks inherent existence yeah would say lacks an independent existence yes okay um and that's just the same thing as saying it's empty and it's just the same thing as it arises dependently on dependent on the way of looking yeah so very brief answer for that is that is that okay? Yes. Um, Okie dokie. So, so that in order that you don't get quite confused, uh, or rather m- more confused than you <laughs> may already be, um, you should probably know that this way, as I'm about to uh, talk today, and the way that's written about and talked about other times, this way of talking about the unfabricated, and this way of talking about the fabricated, and this whole idea of insight ways of looking, being ways of looking, ways of relating in the moment that that reduce clinging, and through reducing clinging, fabricate less, and the implication from that that a thing is therefore empty to a certain extent um, and a dependent arising and with the implications about its reality. All of that, the, the way I'm talking about unfabricated, fabricated, insight ways of looking, clinging, um, unfabricating, emptiness, dependent origination and the implications for reality, all of that together is is rare in the Dharma world. Um, I don't, it, it's not like you you can just expect uh, it to mesh neatly or nicely with other things that you will you will read and hear. So I'm just saying that. I'm not saying it's better or worse, or you're welcome to prefer whatever you prefer or make more sense, or just that if, you, if you're approaching something else with the idea, well, they must be saying the same thing, you're liable to just get very confused. That's, that's all. And then completely up to you to gravitate to what you gravitate to, explore what you feel drawn to explore, etc., etc. But if you know that from the start, then you won't just kind of be meshing, trying to mesh things together, which actually don't really mesh that well. 
So it's rare in the Dharma, this, this way of talking about these things and this way of explaining things. And it's very rare, um, the, the whole conceptual framework that ties it all together, certainly with the soul making, but even all that tied together. And as I said, the understanding is very rare. So it's very, uh, it's very rare f- for people to really understand this um, yet. So there's a, there's a passage in the Pali Canon where the Buddha and Ananda are sort of hanging out. And, um, and Ananda, remember, he was the Buddha's attendant. So he probably heard, let's probably, let's estimate maybe 90% of the Buddha's teachings, something like that. Talks to monks, talks to nuns, talks to lay people, talks to kings and queens. Um, talks to individual wandering ascetics, question and answer sessions, one-to-one interviews, etc. Um, over, I don't know how many years, but a, lo- a long time. He was just there all the time, all the time, pretty much all the time. And he wasn't, he wasn't a thicko. After the Buddha died, he became an arahant, so he wasn't someone incapable. And they're hanging out one day, and he says, and the Buddha says something about dependent arising, and Ananda says, it's so clear. It's so clear to me. It's wonderful, this dependent rising. It's just as clear as clear could be. And the Buddha turns to him and says, don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. We're talking about something really profound here. Profound in, as a teaching, profound in its manifestation. So, uh, just to contextualize this a little bit. Um, um, some, and this is an interesting thing as a teacher, because... I feel I'm talking, I'm talking to someone and they're like, oh, I don't understand, I don't understand. I'm, and, and, then, and then there's self-judgment, I'm so thick, I'm lost, I'm confused and all this stuff. And actually they do understand. They do understand very well the beginnings of this thread. Remember I was talking about this whole thing, emptiness, fabrication, dependent arising. It's just a thread. It's, it's, the, same, it's the same understanding I'm taking from the most basic level that my mother could understand who has not meditated for 10 seconds in her whole life and is not interested in anything. She can understand when she gets into Vapancha compared to afterwards, that was fabricated, that was less fabricated. There was something unreal there and there was something, she would just say real here. Yeah? It's, the same, it's the same thing. Papancha compared to normal consciousness, normal, and, and you just keep following that thread. And the person says, I don't understand, I don't understand. Actually, you do understand. You're on the right thread and you just, you need to know that you understand and keep going. So there are some people like that and they need encouragement. Actually, you do understand. Just keep following. Same inquiry. Just keep going. Don't freak out. Other people are a bit more like an under, yes, 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 I understand completely. I get it. It's wonderful. And and I think you don't understand. (laughs) You don't understand. So the question is, which one are you? <laughs> and are you able to know which one you are? So, again, put this in a little context. I would say one doesn't understand dependent arising and emptiness and all this business unless one understands that what dependently arises does not arise. And one understands that that is the case for many reasons. What dependently arises does not arise. 
what is unfabricated is not unfabricated. Unless one understands that, one hasn't really understood all this business. What is unfabricated is not unfabricated. Where, unless one has also understood that when we talk about this fabrication business and ways of looking, we're not talking about, ah yes, it's because the brain processes things like this, or these are the neural circuits, and etc. Because we're not talking about something based in materialism or physicalism. Brains, neurons, neurotransmitter molecules and atoms, they are empty too. Neither are we talking about uh, the kind of complement in philosophy from materialism, mentalism. Everything is uh, everything is projected by the mind. The mind is somehow real and everything is projected by the mind. So unless one understands all that, one doesn't really fully yet understand this dependent arising business. Unless one understands why there is no trauma. There is no trauma. But we can respect and care for trauma and heal it, but there is no trauma. Unless one understands why there are no ways of looking, but at the same time it's impossible to exist even for a moment without a way of looking. But there are no ways of looking. Unless one understands that things are not impermanent, but nor are they permanent. Unless one understands that there are no moments. There are no moments of time. One hasn't understood all this yet. Unless one understands that there are many things and at the same time there are no things. And in a way there's one thing only, or there's many kinds of versions of one thing only. Or there are infinite things. All these are true. Many, none, one, infinite, and none of them are true. Unless one understands that there is no suffering and there is no liberation. And unless one understands that emptiness too is emptiness, one hasn't fully yet understood dependent arising. So, if you're one of those people who think that you have, um, that's great. (laughs) 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 I could go on, we could go on adding to this list. Um, but I need to, uh, there's some, we're talking about something very profound and I'm not going to be able to explain it all today. Uh, everything there, if you really read and listen and, pract- and practice, obviously, uh, you sh- it should actually all completely make sense in the heart through practice. So, this talk, I'm not going to go into the whole emptiness thing, we don't have time. In a way, it's only half of I said. I'm just going to talk about to the unfabricated a little bit, and um, and it's only really really a little of what's really a huge area and profound area of understanding and practice. I'm really going to talk about the jhanas and in relationship to the unfabricated. 
Um, and one more thing, you know, uh, we're not, some of you are a bit new to this fabrication and fading thing, um, so we should be clear, one isn't going to understand this business about fading and dependent arising and emptiness without practicing what I call insight ways of looking. Okay, one is not going to understand that without practicing, really practicing those insight ways of looking like a lot and getting into them and really uh, grappling with that and letting the beauty of that open up. So jhanas are really not the best way to understand fading and emptiness. They're really not the best way to understand fading and emptiness. However, emptiness and fading is part of the best way to understand the jhanas. That's not quite a contradiction, what I said. Jhanas are not the best way to understand fading and emptiness, but fading and emptiness are part of the best way to understand the jhanas, along with what we talked about, development of sensitivity and attunement and deep resource, etc. So partly the reason I've been going on about emptiness and all that and ways of looking is because it forms the best and most coherent way of understanding the jhanas and, and placing them coherently in a much bigger picture of the Dharma, a picture which makes sense of um, a lot of possibilities, including soul-making Dharma, but even without soul-making Dharma. Okay, so that was all before I even start. but. Um, so it's interesting, I th whether, whether people use the word or not, fabrication, um, I would say that uh, most certainly most insight meditation teachers use the idea of fabrication. They may use that word or not use that word. So when people talk about papancha, whether they use the word fabrication or not, they're suggesting that it's what we call a fabrication in both senses. It's something that the mind has just concocted. That's another word. It's a concoction. It's a construction. And with this double meaning that we have in some languages, it's also a lie. Um, and that contrasts with um, what usually implicit implicitly is something unfabricated, um, something real or reality, something true or truth. So, do you understand? Even if a person isn't using that concept, it's there woven into most insight meditation teachings. Fabrication is um, a construction, a concoction by the mind, and what is not real, it's a lie in some ways. So that unfabricating the fabricated, um, or not fabricating, um, is just part of practice. It's part of what is kind of conveyed in any um, actually any Dharma teaching, let alone just insight meditation teaching, un not fabricating or unfabricating the fabricate is part of practice. And um, more than that, implicitly or explicitly, there's an ontology woven. That ontology means a view or philosophy or belief about what is real. So when, when people talk about papancha, it's even if they don't use the language real or fabricated, the way they talk and, and the jokes and the, and the humor of it, it's clearly like, wasn't that funny because it was completely not real, right? You understand this? So even if a person doesn't pull all this out, there's fabricated and unfabricated as notions that, do, does this make sense? <coughs> 
So there's an implicit ontology, implicit view of what's real, and there's an implicit ontological hierarchy that goes. Y sometimes it's drawn out, it's made explicit, more often it's implicit, it's not actually uh, talked about in, in this way, but sometimes it is. In other words, clearly the real is better than the unreal, is preferable, right? That's woven into it as well, right? And wrapped up in all that, is there's a value judgment involved. It's better. It's, it's, this is a waste of time, this is ridiculous, this is worthless, this is a, um, or even harmful, etc. Most of the time, that's just um, sort of um, spun into the rhetoric, into the teaching rhetoric, um, sometimes verbally and sometimes not verbally. And it's not just in insight meditation, it can also be in kind of pop, pop versions of Zen. If you get a bit conceptual, you just get hit on the nose with a stick or whatever. And it's, it's conveying something about what's real or not real, because reality is what's not bound up with concept. Do you understand? Whether, whether one, very rarely is there actual, actually a big probing of the philosophical questions and psychological questions here, it's usually conveyed more, not subliminally, but non-verbally, non-philosophically, usually. So whatever kind of dharma uh, we're talking about, not just insight meditation, that's an observation. So what is this unfabricated that people may be suggesting or pointing to or kind of is, is, is there uh, implicitly without being named? And what is the, the fabricated again, uh, whether they use those words or not? So unfabricated, maybe we've touched on this. It's it's basically what is not papancha, as I just said. So when there's the absence of papancha, we are we are not fabricating. Or mindfulness reveals what is not fabricated. Mindfulness, less story, less view, less reaction, less conceptual sort of. Uh, involvement and that mindfulness or bare attention reveals the unfabricated even if one doesn't use that language it 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 cuts fabrication does make sense yes um or you may have heard someone say that's not that's not an emotion don't get so it's just some sensations really it's just some sensations in the chest and again there's the the really the ontological question the hierarchizing all that or all there really is, not really self and story, all there really is, is the process of the five aggregates in time, um, including those sensations arising and passing in, in, in the chest area, whatever. Or um, this vast primordial impersonal awareness is, is regarded as what's real, and the whole um, concept, concepts um, or... Um, stories of self if regarded as not real. So whatever language one uses, there is this kind of, um, as we said, this um, something that's fabricated, something that's not fabricated, some ontological distinction and hierarchy there, and a value, value judgments woven, up, woven in with all that. So when I use the un word unfabricated, um, I don't mean um, what is, I certainly don't mean what is revealed by bare attention. I certainly don't mean what is there visible to us, sensible to us when there is no thought. I certainly don't mean uh, what's 
sensible to us, perceivable to us, for us, when we're calm, uh, without papancha, without making a fuss in the world. More, I would say, it's what appears or what opens when there is no intention whatsoever and no conception whatsoever. I could also say no perception whatsoever. But I have to explain those words because I don't mean by conception, thought. So when I say non-conceptual, I mean much, much more than non-thinking. So concept to me is a much deeper and subtler thing, uh, much more deeply woven into consciousness. And I'll come back to that hopefully in this talk. And when I say no intention, I certainly don't mean, or I mean much more than I'm just sitting here being, I'm just being right now, or I'm not doing, or I'm not making any effort, or I have no plans, or anything like that. I mean something much, much more, again, subtle um, than that. Much more deeply um, intricated, if that's even a word, into, into consciousness and how consciousness works. I'll come back to that later. But let's go back to what I said before. There is, um, in whatever Dharma we're teaching, there is woven into this some kind of idea of the fabricated and the un unfabricated with all these ontological hierarchies and judgments. The question is, where are we limiting the process of unfabricating? So for all these dharmas, there is a practice that involves unfabricating. Do you understand? And the question is, where are we limiting that? Where are we limiting this practice of unfabricating? Where are we drawing the line, drawing the line, saying, ah, oh, that's it now, done, I've done with fabrication, or that was a moment of unfabricating. Where are we limiting it, and why are we limiting it there, or here, or wherever we are? Where and why? And why not leave it as an open question? So these are real questions. In other words, what answer someone, someone needs to come up with a really good answer to, to for these questions, I would say. So I'm meaning something quite different by the unfabricated, and we'll return to those questions at the end. Um, I think they're very, very important. Um, but there are lots of texts, excuse me, there are lots of texts um, where the Buddha describes unfabricated, at least to my reading of them, they sound like what I'm talking about. Um, uh, I'm not going to be able to find them, but um, <sighs> see. well, there are texts where um, I'm not going to hunt for it right now, but um, there are texts where the Buddha's describing um, a state where all perception has ceased. So not even what we were talking about yesterday, the neither perception or non-perception. All perception of a subject, all perception of any kind of object, not even nothingness, not even a state of neither perception or non-perception. All sense of time, all space, not even a present moment, all of that not there. And there are, there are many texts in the Pali Canon. Um, some is interesting, a while ago, I don't know whether it's still the case, some, so there's only, 
some people would say, oh, there's only one place in the Pali Canon where the Buddha talks about such a thing. And it's not true. There are many, many places, and they're all different. It's not the same little passage getting reprinted. It's lots of different, ver- uh, lots of different um, texts pointing to the same, the same experience. I should find one. Um, let's see. If we just a little bit patient. Um, Well, okay, this this one will have to do for now. Um, That sphere should be understood, should be known that dimension, that ayatana should be known, that realm should be known where the eye ceases and perceptions of forms fades away. There's no, no, no sight, no visual objects. That sphere should be known where the ear ceases and the perception of sounds fades away. That sphere should be understood, should be known where the nose and smells, the tongue and taste, the body and perception of tactile objects fades away. That sphere should be understood where the mind ceases and perception of mental phenomena fades away. And by mental phenomena, it doesn't just mean thought. It means any mental perception. So perception of a jhana, perception of the neither perception, neither perception or non-perception, perception of nothingness, any, any perception at all. So talking about something completely beyond m- perception of matter, completely beyond any kind of measurement, completely beyond any kind of perception, any subject, any object, any, any sense of time, even a present moment. No space, no nothing. So, as I said, there are, there are used to be. I don't know if it's still, I think it probably still is the case. There's people who say, "No, there's only one passage." But actually, in it's, it's in seeing the freeze. If you're interested, there's many, many passages um, that, in different ways, describe such a such an opening and such a realm, place, whatever we want to call that. And some people really don't like that, and some people uh, really oppose such a teaching. That's always quite interesting to me. Some people um, use some of those passages or use words like the unfabricated, but if you listen to what's being said or if you follow the teaching, they're actually using unfabricated synonymous with awareness, often vastness of awareness, and claiming that is the unfabricated, that is the ultimate, or that's the nature of mind, whatever. Occasionally, very occasionally, someone is is rarely, it's usually people who haven't been practicing that long, certainly not teachers, I don't, I never heard a teacher say this, but occasionally, again, things, someone construes the unfabricated as just things as they are, as as seen or as as sensed, as revealed with bare attention or mindfulness. So sometimes people use either parts of these quotes or the word unfabricated, but in, in quite different ways. So very briefly, um, we're talking about if, if yesterday's language, w- you know, stretched language to the limit, here it's, it's really uh, gone, gone uh, beyond the pale. Um, the Buddha 
sometimes talks in positive language here. There is, as I said, something, of that passage we just read, this should be known, that dimension should be known. It's, a, it's a, as if it's a something that should be known. Um, and uh, there's another passage I'll read where he says, um, here, with regard to earth, the perception of earth has disappeared. With regard to liquid, the perception of liquid has disappeared. With regard to fire, the perception of fire has dis disappeared. With regard to wind, the perception of wind has disappeared. In other words, with regard to materiality, that was the physics in their days. With regard to materiality, the perception of materiality has disappeared. With regard to the realm of infinite space, the perception of the realm of infinite space has disappeared. With regard to the sphere of infinite consciousness, the perception of the sphere of infinite consciousness has disappeared. With regard to the sphere of nothingness, the perception of the sphere of nothingness has disappeared. With regard to the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, the perception of the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception has disappeared. With regard to this world, this world, the perception of this world has disappeared. With regard to the next world, the perception of the next world has disappeared. Whatever is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, attained, sought after, or explored by the mind, the perception of that has disappeared. Absorbed in this way, samadified in this way, one is absorbed, dependent neither on earth, liquid, fire, wind, dependent neither on perception of materiality, nor on the sphere of infinite space, the sphere of infinite consciousness, the sphere of nothingness, the sphere of neither perception or non-perception, this world, the next world, nor on what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, attained, sought after, or explored by the mind, and yet one is absorbed. And to this one, absorbed in this way, all the gods pay homage, even from afar. Homage to you, they say, you of whom we don't even know what it is that you are absorbed, dependent on. <laughs> so it's something so beyond, and these, are p these, these gods are gods with very, very refined, subtle perception. It's gone even beyond that. The point I want to make, though, is the Buddha's talking about it in sort of positive language. It's a, it's a something that we can perceive, perceive in a way. Um, other times, um, he talks about it. Um, so there, it, it's a something. It's as if it's an object that the mind can know. The mind knows this object, as if in that language. Other times, he talks about it as if a, it's a subject, as if it's consciousness released. And there was that analogy I talked about yesterday of the sunlight not landing anywhere. It's completely released. And um, so in those terms, talking about it in subjective terms, if you like, he talks about um, what remains with with the cessation of the six sense consciousnesses smell sight taste sight smell taste touch hearing smelling the five senses and and the men and mental consciousness when that all stops the cessation of the six sense consciousnesses and their respective objects of knowledge smell sights taste etc thoughts or anything perceivable in the mind what remains is consciousness without attribute, without end, luminous all around. Here, water, earth, fire, and air, materiality, have no footing. Here, long and short, subtle and gross, pleasant and unpleasant, all kinds of discrimination or measurement or relativisms. And nama rupa, nama rupa is perception, attention, contact, feeling, and body, awareness. 
all are destroyed with the cessation of consciousness, i.e. those six sense consciousnesses, here each of these is destroyed. Uh, the first phrase there, consciousness without attribute, the Pali is actually vinyanam anidasanam, and actually a better translation, I think, is um, nidasa is to point to something or, or to show something, and so it's consciousness that does not point to anything. Again, does not land as we were talking about yesterday. So it's a consciousness completely released from any kind of object. So there he's talking of this unfabricated as in a kind of subjective terms, as a kind of awareness beyond any kind of sense of awareness that we might have. Because awareness, even if it's aware, remember the sixth jhanas, awareness aware of itself. Here it's not even that. It's not awareness aware of it's not awareness aware of itself, it's not awareness aware of nothingness, it's not neither perception nor non-perception, it's gone, it's gone beyond. It's totally released. So sometimes he talks about it as a kind of object, sometimes he talks about it as a kind of subject, but often he just says, um, he talks in negative terms, or in the, in the Western theological traditions, apophatic terms, or the via negativa. You can't say this, you can't say that, nothing, no attribute you say about it will be, will be true. And the Buddha says, where all phenomena are removed, where there's this complete fading of all phenomena, all ways of speaking are removed as well. All possibility of speaking about it is removed as well. So there are m more often than not, the Buddha talks about it in negative language. It's the cessation of this, it's the fading of that, it's the unfabricating of this. And, and the whole thing is pointed to apophatically, ne negatively, this mystery. This, uh, what is totally beyond what, what, what the mind can uh, grapple with or even understand in any kinds of conceptual ways. So this experience, this opening, this realization is possible for us as meditators. I'm absolutely not saying it's easy, but it is totally possible. Um, we're still left with other interesting philosophical questions though. Um, and one teacher said, uh, I wasn't there, I heard it secondhand, but he said, well, you can't go from meditative experiences to epistemology and ontology, meaning just because you've had a meditative experience, it doesn't mean that what you've experienced in your meditation is anything real or is anything that you should trust in any way. Do you understand? Do, do just because you've had a, a nice meditation experience, it doesn't prove anything about anything. You just had a nice experience, so what? Do, do you understand this? I'm not going to say. Um, I think it's an important point. Um, I think it's an important point. Just because I've had a meditation experience, what does it prove about the reality of what has opened to me in my meditation? How can I be sure that that points to anything real? That I can trust epistemologically, that I trust that knowledge, that it's pointing to something ontologically real? What I would respond rather is, fair enough, that's true. I cannot 100% guarantee um, an epistemology based on meditative experience. No one can. What are you going to argue? 
How are you going to construct a philosophical argument that would do so? But the question I would have is, okay, but where does your epistemology come from? And how will you prove your epistemology? Whatever your epistemology, meaning what are you believing to be valid knowledge about reality? That's what epistemology means. It's connected with ontology, what is real. Are you going to say, this world of matter that everyone agrees on, that's real? You still have to prove that. And just, uh, you know, you just need to pick up a few books on physics in the 20th century and begin asking, what do you mean by matter? And the whole question starts to kind of, or the whole assumption that matter is something real starts to uh, get very, very shaky indeed. So matter, we understand matter now post the scientific revolution. We understand matter as Descartes and Newton understood it. Most people on the street, let's say. But come, for example, the quantum revolution, Neil Spohr, one of the fathers of quantum physics, basically he said, everything we call real, everything we think of as real, is made from things we cannot call real. This is what quantum physics seems to have shown us. So if you say, if I ask this person who says, you cannot go from meditation experience to epistemology and ontology, claims about reality, I would just say, well, what is your epistemology? And if they say something like, I believe in the reality of matter, I say, what do you mean by matter? And have you really gone into wh whether that's real or not in the way that y you think? Or is your epistemology, is your idea of what is real and what's trustable as knowledge, is it just socially agreed upon views? Well, it seems like most people in my society agree on this view, therefore it must be right because our society is very smart and we, we make all the right choices, right? <laughs> you guys haven't read the news recently, has it? Um, or is it just the most common view that I choose as my idea of what's just what most people believe? Or if it's Descartes again, you know, that was a long time ago and philosophy has, Western philosophy has really moved on. There's like quite sophisticated, profound critiques of Descartes, this idea of there's mind and there's matter or whatever. So I wouldn't disagree with this person who says you can't just um, automatically, unquestionably jump from a wonderful meditation experience that you've really enjoyed to claims of uh, ontology and epistemology. But I would just turn it around and say, okay, well, where, where is yours coming from? What are we going to do? And some people say, uh, all that um, talk about epistemology and ontology, which I've talked a lot about in recent years, um, we don't do that anymore. That's quite a popular view in modern philosophy, as well modern Western philosophy, with the post-metaphysical, we don't do metaphysics kind of thing. Actually, it's impossible. It's impossible to live in the world and be in the world without some view, some belief about what is real and what is not real, and what kind, what constitutes valid knowledge or valid judgment about that. It's impossible to be a person and function in the world and make choices, even walk from here to tea time or go to the toilet without some ontological, epistemological um, view going on. Well, nowhere near any kind of philosophy or whatever. Um, so there's always some epistemology, some uh, epistemological position, view, etc. It's unavoidable, and similarly with ontology, with claims about reality. 
that's really, really interesting. Okay. So it's it's a very complicated area and we cannot I think if you really, really care about all this stuff, you cannot get away from such questions. So someone who says to you, Well you can't just glibly jump from your meditation experience to claims about reality or this thing that you've opened to is real. They're in the same boat about whatever they believe. They're just glibly jump and, and it's easier for them because they're not questioning or not even realizing what they're assuming or it hasn't been brought into question. But there are profound, difficult questions here about epistemology and ontology. What is the reality status of this unfabricated that we might open to a meditation? Okay. What is the reality status of all this? I'm mentioning that. I'm not going to... Uh, well on it now, I've talked about it a lot elsewhere. Um, question though, meditative question, how, how does this um, most wonderful of wonderful openings open? How, as meditators? The Buddha says it's a fruit of Gnosis, Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, which means it's a fruit of deep insight. I, in other words, it comes about only through deep insight we're not just talking about a state of samadhi or concentration. So you can get to the eighth jhana, so just, just by concentrating. I start with my nostrils, whatever, if I'm doing that method, I just concentrate, concentrate, concentrate. The first jhana opens, I let that mature, let the mango ripen. The second jhana, third, fourth, fifth, all the way to the eighth. I haven't done any insight at all. I could have, as we said, the more I get into it, there's more insight ways of looking that open up these jhanas. But for this one, the unfabricated, I cannot get there without insight. It's not just a, s a natural state of concentration that will open. It's not, it's not just a samadhi that will naturally ripen. And again, this is all in seeing that freeze and, and explaining what kinds of insights and how we, how we go about that. I'm going to give a very brief, um, brief sort of tour of a few possibilities and take them from the, the Buddha. Um, instead of what I've said in saying that free. So, um, so here he is talking. Uh, actually, it's Ananda. Actually, the first the first example is from Ananda, and uh, he says there is the case where a monk enters and remains in the first jhana. He notices that this first jhana is fabricated and willed. Is fabricated and willed, it has intention in it. He discerns whatever is fabricated and willed is inconstant and subject to cessation. Staying right there, he reaches the ending of the effluence. The ending of the effluence is just another word for complete awakening, complete enlightenment. Ending of greed, hatred and, of, of, uh, hatred and delusion. Or if not then, through passion and delight for this very phenomenon of insight, in other words, one is kind of clinging to one's insight, um, and from the total ending of the first five fetters, in other words, the experience, the letting go, of s uh, through seeing that it's fabricated, the first jhana, um, takes this person to the, the second highest level of awakening. But they're still clinging to the insight, and that's keeping them from full awakening. So they're uh, uh, a non-returner, and therefore he is due to be reborn in the pure abodes, there to be totally unbound, totally 
uh, to reach Nirvana. Never again to return from that world. And then he repeats it and under-repeats it with the same, uh, with the second jhana, with all the way up to the realm of nothingness, and also with um, states of deep uh, Brahma-viharas, metta, karuna, uh, mudita, and upekka. So these states, these very stable states, are used as objects of ins for insight ways of looking. And here, particularly, is saying is fabricated. It's fabricated with the implication, therefore, it's dukkha. It's unsatisfactory. And because one is regarding it that way, there is the in that moment there's the reducing of clinging, and because there's reducing of clinging, there is less fabrication. Yes. There is value judgment in that moment. In other words, it's fabricated, it's unsatisfactory. There's a kind of dismissing. Neti, neti, if you know from the, from the uh, other Indian traditions. I'm, I'm not wanting what's fabricated. Well, this is all the subtext, the subtext of fabricated fabric. I'm not wanting what's fabricated. I'm looking for the unfabricated. I want what's unfabricated and therefore not dukkha. You understand? This is all implicit in the way of looking. So here it, it, it uh, emphasizes um, what is fabricated as impermanent. The Buddha talks about three kinds of dukkha. There's dukkha dukkha, which means just what's painful. It, it's dukkha because it hurts, this, this backache. There's um, anicca dukkha, which is it's dukkha because it's impermanent. So even this happiness, even this joy, even this love uh, is unsatisfactory, is dukkha, because it's impermanent. You understand? It can't fully forever satisfy me. The third one is uh, something like sankara dukkha, sankata dukkha. It's dukkha because it's fabricated. Now that means more than to say it's impermanent. Because of everything we've been taught is fabricated, it's something that doesn't have inherent existence. And therefore it's kind of in some way in some way, or viewed from a certain perspective, it's dukkha. Okay, so this is one method. You take a jhanic state up to the realm of nothingness, or you take um, a nice, stable Brahma-viharic Brahma state, metta or whatever, and you view it as fabricated in the moment, again and again, fabricated and therefore unsatisfactory. And because of that, there's less clinging, and because there's less clinging, there's less fabricating, and see where it goes. And the instruction here from Ananda, and if you really develop this practice, you can go deep, 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 deep. Maybe all the way. Okay, second example, and um, let's find that. So, the Buddha says, I, I tell you, the ending of the effluence, again, the ending of greed, uh, aversion and delusion, meaning to total awakening. The ending of the effluence depends on the first jhana. I tell you, total awakening depends on the first jhana. And then he gives an analogy, which is probably a little bit confusing, so I'm going to leave that and just read what he says technically. Um, there is the case. Let's just do that. Um, there is the case where a monk enters and remains in the first jhana. And he describes the first jhana. Piti and Sukha, born of withdrawal, withdrawal from the hindrances, accompanied by Vitaka and Vichara. 
he regards, the monk regards, whatever, whatever phenomena that are connected with form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, and, con and uh, consciousness. In other words, the five aggregates, form, Vedana, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness. He regards them as inconstant, stressful, a disease, a cancer, an arrow, painful, an affliction, alien, a disintegration, a void, not self. Okay, so here's the jhana, and now one is looking at the elements that make up the jhana, or some of the elements. Actually, he's looking particularly at the, the jhana factors here, right? We said there are five factors in the first jhana. Are you following this? And, and one's looking at them, insight way of looking, in the moment, um, and looking at them in these ways. Now, all that list of uh, adjectives there, um, they are inconstant, stressful, a disease, a cancer, an arrow, etc. We can actually put them into uh, into four baskets, okay? There's a lot of repetition there, basically. We can put them into the baskets of the three characteristics and one of emptiness, voidness. So the three characteristics are dukkha, which is unsatisfactory. It is, as I said, a disease, a cancer, an arrow, painful, an affliction, stressful, etc. Um, all that. that. That they're just similar words for saying is dukkha. Yeah, it's unsatisfactory, yeah? So it's the first characteristic. Are you following this? Yeah. Um, the, the second basket is, is the second characteristic, impermanent. And here we have words like inconstant, um, a disintegration, etc. Um, so some of it's the second characteristic, the second um, characteristic as an insight way of looking. Yes, I'm looking at the jhana factors right here in the jhana. So I have to have enough sensitivity, enough malleability, enough attunement of mind to be able to know the jhana really well and then kind of look at the individual jhana factors with these insight ways of looking. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, third basket is the third characteristic, what's known as the third characteristic, and that's that it's not self. So when he says it's, uh, he says it's not self, and also when he says it's alien, um, it's not self. It's not me, not mine. None of this. The piti is not me and mine. The sukha is not me, not mine. The 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 ekagata, the concentration, all the rest of it is not me, not mine. We're looking at it with the insight way of looking of anatta. It's anatta. It's anatta again and again. Yeah. The fourth basket is a void. Not avoid, but a void. You understand? <laughs> Two words, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Two words, a void. So I think this points to um, the understanding. They're not just not me, not mine. They're not just anatta, but they're, they have no phenomenal self. They are empty of having a phenomenal self. The piti doesn't exist inherently. The uh, ekagata, the whatever, it it's void, it's empty of inherent existence, void and empty, interchangeable words. Okay, and um, that's an interesting word. Sunya is the Pali, and sometimes people occasionally say to me, oh, well, the only place the Buddha really talks about emptiness in the Pali canon is two suttas with emptiness in the title, but actually there's all kinds of teachings about emptiness of phenomenal self. 
not just this anatta, not me, not mine, emptiness of the personal self. There's all kinds of teachings about emptiness of phenomenal self in the Pali Canon, and different ways the Buddha uses the word empty. And so here's one, they're, they're a void, they're an emptiness. So there's four ways of looking there. The three characteristics, unsatisfactory, dukkha, impermanent, anicca, not me, not mine, anatta, and void or empty, shunya. Sunya in Pali. The jhanas form um, really good s- because they're stable objects. Partly what it means, jhana partly can be the etymology, can be, I think I said, traced to um, a, a, a candle that burns steadily. So because of the steadiness of a jhana, remember it's our two S's in the middle of sassy, because of the steadiness, they actually form really good objects on which to, to practice these insight ways of looking. Yeah? Um, also, because they're um, clear, uh, the chitta in, in a jhana is clear and subtle and malleable. It's an it's a optimum, optimum, what do they say? Location, location, location. <laughs> uh, they're really good spaces, places to practice this. But, but all this stuff we're talking about is after you've really mastered and become familiar with a jhana. Then you, can, then you need to get you know, practiced at your insight ways of looking. So all this we're talking about, it's a long, a long, long process of development of practice, but incredibly beautiful and incredibly um, freeing and gratifying. But it takes time, you know, to develop all this. So earlier in the retreat, we said, why is it such a great place to do this? Um, Yes, a stable object. Yes, a clear and subtle chitta. But already in the jhanic state, there is a little less fabricating, right? We've almost defined the whole jhanic spectrum that way. And that means the self is less fabricated at that point. And what do selves do? They go me, mine, me, mine, me, mine, me, mine, me, mine. They appropriate, right? So that the habit of me mining is already a little bit less. So it becomes easier than usual in that space to just see things as not me, not mine. Yes? So the, the anatta practice is easier. It's easier to let go because of the well-being. Um, and especially if you're confident that you can get this jhana back. It's not just, oh my God, I had this amazing experience once and I just need to cling on to it. Because once you've gone in and out a lot, you, you, you don't get attached to jhanas anymore. You know, I used to say it's like, it's like in this country, you know, thank goodness for us, that um, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get super attached to water. I mean, there's water there, but I actually don't know how old that is. But, um, but if, I, if I want water, I know I can go to the tap. It's just there. When I don't know that there's a tap there that I can turn on and off, then my relationship with water gets very uh, you know, attached and difficult, and understandably so. But once in and out, in and out of the jhanas, we can actually let go quite a lot in the jhanas, because it's a well-being that... Uh, it, it becomes much, we're, we're less attached to, we're more used to, we trust it can come and go, and, and it's easier to let go there. And also, as I said, impermanence becomes obvious. So that, that's also one of the reasons why they're prime, prime spaces. Here it says, uh, who is this talking? This is the Buddha. And um, he, he, um, he's talking about, so I tell you the ending of the efforts depends on the first jhana and then, and then he goes right through all the other jhanas up to the nothingness, okay? And, but I would say probably 
probably it will get easier with the third jhana just because there's much more stillness there. And what we're talking about at this level is really something that takes quite a lot of stillness and spaciousness and um, kind of subtlety. And if there's too much sort of PT bouncing off the walls and kind of making things turbulent, this kind of thing can get a little more difficult. Um, but theoretically, I think it's possible. It's probably much easier from the third jhana onwards but not past the realm of nothingness, because in the neither perception or non-perception, it's, it's you need to actually perceive things here. You need to perceive what the jhana factors are. You need to be able to almost make clear things. And neither in the neither perception or non-perception, uh, that's partly what defines the state, is almost like I'm, I'm not quite perceiving anything. Yeah. Again, I've said that only a Buddha can do this in the realm of neither perception or non-perception, not an arahant, not anyone else. Um, so he goes through the same thing with all the jhanas, and again he says, um, well actually I, I've missed a bit out. So he regards whatever phenomena that are connected with the aggregates there. Uh, sorry, I've made a mistake. He, this one is, is concerned with the aggregates, not with the jhana factors. So the five aggregates that are present in the jhana factors, body, feelings, perceptions, uh, mental formations, fabrications, and consciousness. And he regards them in one of these four ways. Dukkha, anicca, anatta, or sunya. Yeah? Um, and does that, and then he, he turns his mind away from those phenomena because there's a letting go. And having done so, incli- inclines his mind to the property of deathlessness. The amara, what is deathless, this unfabricated. This is peace. This is exquisite. The resolution of all fab, the ending of all fabrication, the relinquishment of all the paraphernalia of being, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, unbinding, or nirvana. And again, it says, um, staying right there. In other words, staying right there, um, he reaches the total liberation. Or if he's a bit, if he, she, they are a bit attached to their insight there, which is, after all, quite an extraordinary level of insight. Um, if they're a bit attached to it, then they get only as far as the non-returner, and they're, in according to this, reborn only in the pure abodes, the heavenly realms, the highest heavenly realms, and in those realms they will come to full awakening. There to be totally unbound, never again to return from that world. So, first jhana up through nothingness, and then he says, thus, as far as the perception attainments go, that is as far as gnosis penetration goes. In other words, that's what I said before. You can only do this kind of insight way of looking on up to the realm of nothingness, because from there, you're not really perceiving anything to get hand enough of a handle on it. Yeah? The aggregates. Okay, third... third um, Third uh, passage. Are, we, are you okay with this? Yeah. Here the Buddha is talking about Sariputta, one of his chief disciples, and says, Monks, Sariputta is pandita, which can get translated as wise. It can also get translated as skilled. He's pandita, he's wise or skilled. He is, uh, the translator here has of great discernment. It's actually mahapanyo. Uh, of great, um, you could say, wisdom, you could say discernment, you could say insight. You could also say, and what I'd like to put the emphasis on, because that's what the passage is talking about, is 
um, Sariputta has great um, skill in insight ways of looking. And as you see, that's exactly what the passage is talking about. Monk Sariputta is wise and skilled, of great insight, of deep insight, of wide insight, of joyous, rapid, quick, penetrating insight. Note the joyous. Yes, joyous. This insight way of looking approach, as I said yesterday, it's a joyous way of practicing insight. There's, there's no way it can't be. I mean, maybe a little bit here and there, but basically because you're looking, because you're relating in a way that unbinds right then, you feel that the taste, you feel it in your body, in the consciousness of some degree of unbinding, some degree of release from suffering, and therefore it is joyous. Beautiful spaces open up. So, <coughs> why is he all that? Because there is the case where Sariputta enters and remains in the first jhana. Whatever qualities there are in the first jhana, uh, and then he lists again the jhana factors, the five jhana factors which we've had, and then he lists things like contact, feeling, perception, intention, consciousness, desire, desire, um, persistence, mindfulness, equanimity, attention, the list could go on a little bit. He ferrets them out one by one. Known to him, they arise. Known to him, they remain. Known to him, they subside. He discerns. So this is how these qualities, not having been, come into play, come into being. Ewam, this is how. Such, such is th the way they do. Remember, the, remember we had this brief discussion, I think Andrew asked about the... Uh, the the um, Satipatthana Sutta and how it can so easily be read and heard and translated as a teaching on impermanence, missing this how. So this is how these qualities, not having been, come into being. And how having been, they, they vanish. Um, he, he remains unattracted and unrepelled with regard to these qualities. Uh, independent, detached, released, with an awareness rid of barriers, he understands there is a further escape, there's a further nisaranam. And pursuing it, he confirms that there is. And that further escape is the second jhana. And then he goes through the same thing, all the way up to the realm of nothingness. Here's a jhana, what, can I, what makes up this jhana? So sometimes, when we're practicing jhana, we, we for the most part, want to not differentiate, not deconstruct it, want to see it as one homogenous yumminess, and I just throwing myself into that vat of homogenous chocolate yumminess. Yes, that's how we want to relate to it. I don't want to be deconstructing it, seeing its gaps and impermanence. I don't want to be deconstructing it in terms of its constituent elements, unless I'm doing that so I can work on one of them, like my... Um, I have to switch the analogy now, like my, like my wattle and door building has got a bit of a hole in it and I need to sort of focus on that bit and, and kind of push it back or bring a... You understand? I'm not, I'm not deconstructing it unless it's, if I've got a samadhi intention, unless it's for the sake of shoring it up for the samadhi. But now we're in an insight way of looking. We are really interested in in the f in the discerning, in the in the seeing what's going on here. What are the elements here? And bringing into play an insight way of looking, which changes my relationship with those elements, very very powerfully, very potently. All this is extremely subtle, but it's absolutely doable with practice. 
Do I put so much emphasis on this sensitivity, attunement, etc.? Take taken to extraordinary levels, but absolutely possible. And if I can do that, then the whole thing begins to unfabricate, unfabricate. In this example, he's going um, stage by stage through the jhanas. I think I said the other day, what might happen is a bit like an elevator shaft. Sometimes the elevator will just go poof and you're just at a floor or in the area of a certain floor somehow somewhere around the seventh jhana, whatever it is sometimes it goes all the way but here um, there's a kind of stage by stage he's stopping at every floor um, so this word This word void, uh, we've already explained that. You know, wha- there's many ways of understanding uh, emptiness, as we said uh, in response to qu- the, note on the question on the note earlier. So we can understand, if I'm looking at a jhana factor or something like attention or even the intention to pay attention or something like um, Vedana or something like um, consciousness, there's many ways to understand its, its voidness, its emptiness. So in other words, there's many possible subtexts if I'm using that way of looking, empty, empty. One of them, though, could be fabricated, as which one might have already understood. I see that when I, uh, when I practice letting go, this fades, therefore it's fabricated, therefore it's empty of inherent existence. But, but the key thing is here, as we said, it's the how how something arises, how these elements arise, and not just the jhana itself, but the actual elements. How is it that consciousness arises? How is it that consciousness fades? How is it that a sense of contact or a perception, which remember means experience or appearance or phenomenon, how is it that it arises and how does it fade? So. That's a very, very, you know, this is the deepest level of dependent arising. And as I said, dependent arising is a teaching you can take on many different levels. At a certain level, it begins to deconstruct, which is why I could say at the beginning, what dependently arises does not actually arise. At the deepest level of understanding dependent arising, what dependently arises does not arise. But there's a whole range of levels. At the deepest level where it kind of still just about make sense to talk about arising. Let's see if I can explain this very briefly. It's again it's in it's in seeing that free is in, in quite careful detail, but it's a very deep meditative state. We don't even need to put a jhana name on it, just somewhere in that territory where there's a lot of fading. No sense of my story, no sense of my personality and all my neuroses and my whole the big complex me. There's just the simplest possible self. What might be the simplest possible self? Yeah, just just a sense of consciousness. Just a, a, a sense of consciousness. No story, no personality. Just a con- just an awareness. Just subject in the in the barest, most basic sense. Everything's faded, and that's all that's left. And with that. All that's left is, let's say, a very, very simple object. Now, it could be the realm of nothingness. It could be something in that territory. Some 
very, very empty state in terms of object or what's being fabricated there as an object. Subject at its most basic level, we might say. Object at its most basic level, we might say. And there's a third element that goes with these that always goes with these. No subject, no object, no object, no subject, but they need a third element to stand together, to construct something. Time, time. And what time doesn't mean, oh yes, I remember when my, um, or what, what I'm gonna do after the retreat. <laughs> Completely beyond all that. It means just a sense of the present moment. Just a sense of a present moment. Now, implicit in a sense of a present moment, I would say implicit, without any thinking, without any, is, is a subtle sense of a future moment and a past moment. It goes with our sense of time. So this is the most basic tripod. <laughs> Three legs. Prop <laughs> propping each other up. They need each other. Take away any one of, generally speaking, there's always exceptions, but generally speaking, take away any one of these legs and the other two come tumbling down. The other two get unfabricated. So this is the most basic perception. This is way down there at the, at the, at the low end of unfabricating. Here's this thing about conception and intention. So I would say this bare, barest subject, this most subtle subject, most unconstructed subject with an extremely unconstructed object and the barer sense of time, it still has pregnant within it conception and intention. There is the sense subject recognizes a something other than it. And subject self by sankhara karmically is invested my big story, none, none of that. There's an investment. This subject, this, this thinnest subject, is invested in some way or another with this object. I like it. I want more of it. This is not linguistic. I like it. I want more of it. I want it to stay around. I want it to increase. I want it to decrease. I want it to go away. I want to keep it just as it is. There's an intention on the subject's part in relation to the object. Do you, do you understand? It's what subjects do. It, this, is, this is karma, this is sankhara, this is the, the wheel of samsara at the, at the most basic, basic level. There's a conception of time. I'm not thinking about time. And there's a conception of an object. I'm not thinking about an object or a subject, but it's woven into the very perception, there's a, there's a conception of subject, object, and time. And woven into that, there's an intention, some intention or other to do with what happens in time, some investment on the subject's part to do with the object about how it, what, what then happens in the next moment. Implicit in a sense of a present moment, the bare sense of time is implicit a sense of a next moment. And there's investment in what will happen in the next moment for this subject. So there's already clinging there. It's wrapped up in the most subtle intention and the most subtle conception. And this is this 
this most basic tripod. This is propping up samsara. And the concept, so we say these, uh, come back to that, the, the, these three arise together. They go back to the, uh, the question on the note. They dependently co-arise. It's not like, first there is a subject sort of sitting around, you know, what's this called when you drumming your fingers, waiting, waiting for an object and waiting for time. <laughs> 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 or that there is time waiting for, uh, w which is also quite interesting if you know something about very recent developments in physics. But um, they arise together. But here we're even saying they arise together. We're really at the edge of what language and conception can Because to arising is something that happens in time. And now we're talking about the arising of time. They arise together, they go together. There's language at exactly at this point, this is the limit, I would say. This is the limit of conventional language in terms of, in terms of how deep we can go with understanding the arising and passing of things and dependent arising. They arise together. They are not separate. Subje subject, object, time. They're not three things. But nor are they one thing. And nor are they nothing, no things. And nor are they many things. And nor are they infinite things. Really. I mean, they're not re you could see them in all those ways. But really, they're not any of those. So, Typical avidya, typical ignorance delusion, has this believes in this conception. There is a subject, there are objects, and there is time. That's the basic that basic conception is avidya. Out of that basic conception comes inevitably this intent, these intentions in some way or another for the next moment in regard to this object, or I want a better object, or whatever it is. Not, not, not talking about any thinking at all. It's so, so subtle. But that's basic avidya, propelling samsara, propelling the wheel of dependent origination at the most basic level. In the conception, in this most basic conception, is the avidya. Out of that most basic conception, not even out of it, but wrapped up with it, is this stream of sankhara intention. That's another of intention as what fabricates. I'm invested, I'm clinging, I'm pushing, I'm pulling in the most, most subtle ways. When we understand what's happening here, understand they're not three, understand they're not one, understand it's not nothing. When we understand how this arises through, through this conception and through the intention and the clinging, at the moment we understand that, or rather, let's put it this way, when I am meditating and I bring that understanding and I use it, as an insight way of looking. I take this, uh, this is what's going on here. There's a conception of subject-object time and it propels, or it, 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 it's wrapped up with, or wrapped up with it is this movement of intention, of clinging, very, very subtle. When I understand that, at the and I plug that in as a way of looking, I understand what's going on, Therefore, these things are fabricated. These subject-object time are not are not fab are fabricated. They're not unfabricated. Time is a fabrication. They're not. Yeah, and I understand how they how they arise together. Then we could say, okay, at that moment, avijja is much, much, much less. In that moment of employing that insight way of looking, does that make sense? 
avijja, the the foundation, or if you like, the first link of dependent arising. We've we've just decreased it radically at that point, and so we're not pumping in to the wheel of dependent arising. We're not pumping the liquid into samsara. Samsara means to flow, sara to flow, in, into that flow. We're not pumping the liquid in because the 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 avijja squeezy liquid box thingy has got no liquid in it or very very little liquid in it does this make sense and then our tripod collapses unfabricating total unfabrication no time no subject no object no present moment no awareness in the usual sense of what we, what we what we mean by awareness, or in any big uh, vastness of awareness, or s- something like that. So, as I said, that we're talking about something very, very subtle, but actually very, very doable, if I approach it in the right way. Um, thus, he trains himself, and that's probably probably takes a while, but it's, it's really, really possible. So the Buddha said. Um, I'm I paraphrasing, he probably said it much uh, <coughs> more elegantly, but it's something like, um, no matter how long your legs are and how long you walk for, uh, you'll never reach the end of the world. No matter how long, even if you lived forever, you'd never reach the end of the world. But without reaching the end of the world, you won't know liberation. <coughs> Without reaching the end of the world, you won't know liberation. So he's talking about this, the end of the world. The other places he defines the world as basically the six senses, what appears in the six senses, including the mind. So you could say, philosophically speaking, all this has relevance as what we might call a phenomenological approach, a radical phenomenological approach in philosophical language. And yet it's still the case that a person might take, might, might go through all this um, business and open to the unfabricated as an experience and yet not take it or decide not to take it uh, as implying anything at all with regard to the world. It only implies something about the mind's relationship with the world uh, and the world of experience. So that then they maybe conclude that I experience the unfabricated and therefore there's no rebirth because I've severed my infatuation and my ties and my clinging with the world. There's no rebirth in the world. And and from that kind of understanding we do get a very, or it's, it's possible to get a very dualistic. There's the unfabricated and there's the world. And uh, not not much more is understood about the world from that viewpoint. So one could uh, view it that way. One could also hear all this, and I think sometimes people do, or partially or partially read read um, about it, and view it as a kind of what we call in philosophy mentalism. In other words, um, all this world is just, um, there is no materiality. It's all, materiality is an illusion, and what's real is the mind, and the mind projects this world. Um, but we're going beyond that. I mean, there's lots of critiques, like I said, that partial understanding. It's the mind, awareness, consciousness, and all the elements of the mind that make up the mind too. They are empty too. One can uh, come to see that they are empty too. 
all of them, all the world and the mind and the elements of the mind, all this, they're like Sariputta gives a um, analogy of two, I think sheaves of corn or wheat or something, you know, like in a field after the farmers do their harvesting, they might prop two sheaves of wheat uh, leaning on each other. The whole thing, mind and world, awareness, the elements of the mind, they all prop up prop each other up. That's also partly what means dependent co-arising, like the, like, the, like the tripod. They're not really separate things. They're empty of being really separate things. But they're not one thing. Some people, um, this, what I've described here, in very briefly, um, kind of rushing through, what I've described here uh, is uh, not only um, beautiful as a practice, but um, profoundly liberating for, the, for their life. I say, m- maybe let's say most people. When we go back to the epistemology question. I'm still left with, well, how do I know I can trust this, what this means? But for s- this is, l- I'm not going into the epistemology thing right now, but for some people it's convincing enough. That's totally convincing and that does it for them. There, there will be people who don't like this approach um, for different reasons, or just would find when they hear about it, they just don't find it convincing. Um, this whole idea of less fabricating and exploring that meditative journey of less fabricating. So there are other approaches to emptiness uh, that are possible, and uh, again, written about them in Seeing the Freeze. They're what I call analytical meditations, or what are called analytical meditations. Very different from this business about insight ways of looking at fabrication. But we can, through these analytical meditations, you can come to understand it's impossible for something to have inherent existence. It's just another way into emptiness. Okay. So going back to something I said at the beginning, if a person, again, says, as I said, fabrication, whether I, they use that word, whether I, whether I use that word or not, fabrication, what we mean by it, is, is an important concept. Fabrication is an important concept. For example, um, uh, seeing Papancha as fabrication, and then, uh, you know, I see you, Mara, seeing seeing its fabrication, letting go of it, and then, um, uh, you know, that one's with the unfabricated. So, Papancha, in the common sense of the word, there's there's actually when the Buddha uses it, he means something much more subtle, I think. But anyway, we'll we'll keep it at that. So fabrication is an important concept because we see, for example, the difference between the papancha mind and uh, the mindful mind or the mind of bare attention. Fabrication is an important concept, but I'm not really interested in all this mystical deep talk of the unfabricated, uh, etc. Or, yeah, but that's all irrelevant to life. Uh, What's that got to do with life, this kind of thing? Or it's only for some people, that, that thing. Fabrication is important as a concept for everyone, but this business about unfabricated, it's only for some people. I would say, are we not then making an artificial distinction or, or drawing an artificial, an arbitrary line between everyday life and the mystical? Because again, as I said at the beginning, why? Why have I, why have you, why has a person drawn the line about what is fabricated, where they have drawn it? Why there? First of all, where exactly have you drawn it? And why there? Do you you understand the question? 
the principle of fabrication, as I said, um, the principle of fabrication, the principle of clinging, the principle of the relationship between clinging and fading, it's the same and it's one spectrum. And as I said, my, my mum can understand. There's Papancha. I have to explain to her a bit what clinging means at that gross level. And she understands, oh yeah, when I just calm down a bit and relax a little bit, then it all, it all fades. But basically, it's the same principle. There was the fabrication. Then I let go of the clinging and the fabrication, the papancha, faded. It's the same principle. It's one spectrum. All the way from that to what we've been talking about this evening. It's one spectrum. There's one principle, actually a really, really simple principle, running all the way through. It's only, perhaps, that preconceived, <coughs> unquestioned, ontological assumptions, assumptions of views about beliefs about what is real, are somehow dragged in to what's actually one spectrum, one, uh, what's actually a coherent system, and then these preconceived assumptions about reality just make a division in that spectrum, and I end up um, dividing the spectrum and actually making it a bit incoherent. You understand? Okay, last thing. Um, again, someone might say, <coughs> well, and we talked about this yesterday a little bit with the realm realm of neither perception or non-perception. So someone might say, well, what's this totally transcendent, unfabricated got to do with me? What's it got to do with life? What's it got to do with my life? It's so transcendent, so removed. You know, life is contact. Life is experiences. Remember, that's what perceptions mean. Life is the senses and what comes to us in the senses. Life is emotions, it's heart, it's story, it's self. Uh, and even if it's not self, it's at least the, the flow of the aggregates. Right? That's life. What's this got to do with life? What's it got to do with me? Why should I be interested in this? Already in the fourth jhana, we talked about the quietening of emotions. And that's the part of life. So we're in, the, in, the, in the jhanas, we're getting used to this unfabricating. Again, it's one way of understanding what's going on. It's probably the most helpful way of understanding what's going on in the jhanas. They're not hundredth time on this retreat. They're not states of deeper concentration and ability to keep your mind unwavering on one object, etc., etc. So already in the fourth jhana, there's a quietening of what we might view as life. And there's hopefully a kind of opening to the beauty of this which is sort of halfway um, or a lot less like life than we think, than we're used to thinking. So what's it got to do with me? And again, um, <coughs> we've talked about this before, you know, it may be that a dualistic understanding and a dualistic sense of the world and a sense of things comes out of all this. There is the unfabricated, this um, wondrous mystical release and opening and something that is completely beyond conception, completely beyond perception. There is the unfabricated and there's the world of the fabricated. And they're really different. They have no connection. And uh, this is clearly better than that. And I don't want to be reborn. I just want to, whatever the word is, dissolve, unbind. Nirvana means unbind, is one of the etymologies. Vana, like a vine, like a, you wrap things in vines. Nirvana, I just want to unbind in that. 
not be reborn. So it could lead to a kind of dualistic understanding, absolutely. Could, doesn't have to. Sometimes what happens for a person opens to this kind of experience and then it's as if that unfabricated then can be, at least at times, um, uh, a sense of it shining through the world of experience, the world of matter, the world of phenomenal reality. The light of the unfabricated shines through, the song of the unfabricated blows through. Um, it casts a light on this world, it casts its light on this world, or it is the light behind um, and through the phenomenal world, or it gives a kind of space and context to this world and the comings and goings and the ups and downs of this world. So that's much less dualistic, right? Have to be careful though, because remember we talked about the after effects of perception, on perception. Um, by now, it should be clear there are many possible, many possibilities for what could be perceived as shining through. It could be the joy of the second jhana, as some people have reported very beautifully. That, that can shine through, or the third jhana, or the, uh, the realm of this or that. Yeah. Um, so there is this possibility, I think, of a sense of the unfabricated shining through, but, but we have to be careful in our discernment. Is it the unfabricated or is it something, something else? But a third possibility is, again, what I've touched on before, and I think we, we talked about it yesterday. Again, it's like through all this, I go further. I go further than the unfabricated. I don't stop there, wondrous as that is. And I go further in my understanding of emptiness and dependent arising. And I realize through that, that I sense through that in my being, in the fibers of my being, in my consciousness, I sense through that this, again, we run out of language, whatever the words might be for something, uh, for participation so profound that it's beyond the word participation, for an intimacy and an involvement so uh, intimate and involved and close and uh, deep that it's beyond what we usually mean by words like intimacy and involvement. Participation, intimacy, involvement in, in the mystery of things, in the mystery and the magic of appearances. And then there's sacredness everywhere. There's holiness everywhere. There's this beauty of emptiness everywhere without any duality. So people take this different ways and, uh, but there are possibilities here, different possibilities. Okay, let's have some quiet together. <coughs> 